Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify black letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Tell us background wise, a little bit about the contracts you have. I know some contracts with NASA, you have something with the French government, you have satellites from Um, all over the... Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that a I little bit. Generally, what you can tell us. Yeah, I know um, some stuff you can't tell us because... We have a lot of confidentiality clauses, Confidentiality stuff which, and ITAR and export laws yeah, and all that stuff. All, most of our work is in open science and open data. So for the government, the NASA, NOAA, USGS work, that's all satellites that are pointed at the Earth and that data is available free for download for anyone anywhere, uh, including like everybody. Even me. Even you. Yeah. It's really, it's a an extremely powerful multi-billion dollar asset that our government has that I think is underutilized and a lot of, t- totally, it's very difficult data to work with, which is good for our business, but not necessarily good for like the world. Right. So a lot of our work is to take that free resource and deploy it in ways that people can use it to make decisions, like everything from where to put wells. We have customers who've done that, how to deal with water resources. Um, how to manage forests and emergency response and, you know, everything in between. So So you don't have to have the expertise in these specific fields, just in how to manage, provide the data for them in an understandable format. Yeah, a lot of our customers are the ones who have the expertise in the fields and and we're sort of trying to figure out how to help them. So do you think, and I know this is an off the wall question, I just thought of it, (laughs) but do you think that artificial intelligence is going to change, enhance, maybe? That is so funny. I just had somebody ask me about that last week. I mean, of course. You have to, especially when you say, hey, we're translating something complicated into data. The first thing that I think is there's this boom in AI, and it seems like it's a field that might be ripe for that. We have a machine learning team, so okay. we're, we're, we're so you're going on top down of that it. field. You're yeah, on top down that road. Yeah. Um, it's, you have to, the big, one of the big things that people want to use satellite data for is change detection okay. and you know seeing what's happened over time, and that's, that's like ripe for automation because you have... right. I mean, because it's massive. Sets it's of data. massive and it's repetitive, and yeah. having a human in a loop is a thing that people do, but it's challenging to make that efficient, to say the least. I mean, in some cases, we've got data sets. The Landsat program goes back to the early '70s, so you've got like decades of data of petabytes. I mm-hmm. guess, yep. yeah, petabytes of data, and it's it can be applied to all kinds of problems. And truthfully, I think it's being underapplied right now. And because there's a lot of groups that just, it's too impermeable to get to and they've got their systems and they're going to stick with what yeah. they've done. And then you decided this is the life for me. I'm going to do this forever or not exactly. Not exactly. So then <laughs> I woke up one morning and I asked myself, is this what I want to do between now and when I'm dead? And I said, no, it's not. I'm really passionate about soldier fuel. You know, and I thought to myself, you know, here's my best friend who created the soldier fuel energy bars and the brand and had been selling it to various um, allies of ours and such around the world. Right. Um, Even Los Angeles County Fire Department. So these are the bars, and I talked to you about this before offline, 
When I was in the army, they were called hua bones. Yes. And the army was giving them to us. Yes. And they were, I think they were different than your bars. Yes. They tasted, they were not good tasting bars. And they had a lot of saturated fats in them. Too. Yeah. So, so I, I do remember hua bars. And if you're, we're in the army a long time ago, think Clinton administration, like I was, you would have had a hua bar maybe. So yeah. that's, that's this bar. That's you right. guys. The, but it, it's better now. Yes. So, we completely so. improved it, uh, redesigned it. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I've eaten several thousands of these bars that my best friend's company had been making. And I thought, well, yeah, I turned, so I turned my farm into something extraordinary. I love that brand soldier fuel. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, instead of eating the bars and always buying them, why don't I own the brand, own the company? Fair. So I spoke with my friend and we decided to combine forces and to take it up to a much higher level. So that's when we created soldier fuel energy drink as well to see if anybody was interested. And if you, you can't see it, if you're listening, but Aleko is drinking a oh. bottle of soldier fuel energy drink. He loves this stuff. So good. And it's got a black Hawk with some fast ropers, fast roping down the front. So good. So, so that's how we came to soldier fuel and go pills. So, so that folks, that's Aleko's background. Very simple. The son of a matador and Swedish showgirl who emigrated to Washington, DC, then became a real estate developer, MBA, Georgetown law school, uh, went to Las Vegas or no, Los Angeles yep. entertainment, entertainment did a couple seasons of a television program for the weather channel tech company. And then thoroughbred breeding farm to soldier fuel. It all makes sense. It, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. Tell us a little bit about your background and how, how you got into patent monetization. And frankly, since a lot of our listeners don't know, uh, what is patent monetization? Was not thrilled with practicing law. I was a little bit bored with it. And it seemed to me that I was doing all the work and my clients were having all the fun. So I thought uh, I'd, I'd take a shot uh, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. But I thought at my age then, which was I guess, you know, mid forties type type of age. If I was going to do it, I better do it then or not at all. It's pretty hard to, to walk away from a partnership in a major firm because you have, you know, a lot of financial security and you don't have to worry where, you know, your next right. uh, check is coming from. I, I took the leap. I left, I left the firm and I tried a couple of things that didn't work out. But they were good learning experiences. I, I really, I really think you have to fail before you succeed, and you you learn as much from or more from failure as you do from success. I've kind of been all of the places, right? You've been in the government side, in alphabet soup agencies, or at least the Central Intelligence Agency. You've been on the government side in the military. You've been in the private sector as in inside counsel, in-house counsel, and then you've served as outside counsel in a private law firm like you do now kind of wrapping all that experience up. So yeah, so tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, how you balance, how you take these experiences and use them for your clients, I guess, benefit. Sure, well, I practice a lot inside government contracts and cybersecurity and technology transactions. And the way I bring my business experience in um, is a lot about contract management and streamlining. So the US government is increasing its compliant initiatives twofold every single day. And as every government contractor knows, there's a million things you have to comply with. And how do you know what they are and how to comply with all of them? So that's really where I try to focus and help companies on 
everything from compliance with the FAR, the DFAR, as well as some of the cybersecurity standards. And I find that most of my companies work in and around the government space. You know, people would say maybe, you know, driving, learning learning how to drive or your first girlfriend or getting married or, or having kids. But really, it was the loss of my father that really changed my life. And we had a, a, a good experience insofar as um, we had time together. We found out that he was going to uh, die in, in about six months. or That's what he was told. It ended up being about three years. So we had plenty of time to make arrangements. And um, even though it was very sad, my dad was surrounded by loved ones and it seemed like a very peaceful uh, way to pass in all of the people around him. It helped him coordinate uh, end of life care, but he had helped coordinate uh, the passing on of his assets. And so one thing that he did was he'd write little notes to us, uh, organizing, you know, here's the combination to this safe and here's, here's the, the trick with this car and how to drive the car. Or, here you can find the keys to, to the you know the locks here and um and just those little post-it notes all these little organizational memos from my dad were you know messages directly from my dad so i got to hear his words and uh you know be reminded of his spirit even after he was gone um so even though i was totally devastated as most people are when they lose their parents you know i, I laid in bed for for a week or so and um you know really wasn't able to to get my wits about me he was there with me in in spirit by the writings that he had put down, even though they hadn't been drafted by an attorney necessarily. He had spent time looking at the possibility of death, and really, it wasn't just a possibility; it's inevitable. And uh, and planning for it, and making sure that he was creating or causing positive change through his death, and that's really what I mean by death positivity. So that's super interesting. So tell me, how did that drive you to estate planning? And how does that relate to, I guess, other things that have happened in your life that kind of create the backdrop for for you and what you do that's unique in the estate planning world? Yeah, the loss of my father and and his efforts to to plan for his death and the people who, who surrounded him, you know, my mom, who was his ex-wife, also helped him uh, plan uh, to pass on the assets and to put things in writing and to have conversations with his heirs about, you know, what their expectations are, how they would interact with each other. You know, we weren't going to fight over assets. So how do we talk right. about it? How do we, how do we feel fair? Um, but really, I think that experience gave me a set of compassion so that when I'm talking to people about their own end of life, I have the experience of talking with my dad you know, sitting quietly. It's not, it's not necessarily a magical or a fun conversation. It's, it's often uh, a slow, thoughtful time where you're just kind of sitting, contemplating, huh? And so I have a business, what's going to happen to the business, right? And then you have to sort of go through how to wind down a business or, you know, I have these kids and one of them's estranged and how do I get them to relate to each other? It's a very complicated, thorough conversation. And the relationship that I had with my dad during those last three years gave me the patience and compassion to just sit and listen to people uh, during these, you know, sometimes challenging, challenging discussions. A lot of people come to me for these topics in, uh, in scarcity. They come with, you know, either feeling scarcity of time for themselves, that they don't have time to do what it is that they want to do, or scarcity of money for their loved ones where they're like, geez, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to have enough money to provide for my kids and then and we can kind of talk it through of okay well did you designate beneficiaries to all of your accounts 
you know, have you, have you thought about how to pass on any of the assets like cars, trucks, or, you know, maybe you can maximize the value now by finding collectors who are interested in these assets that you may not want to pass on to your kids. Cause if they don't want them, don't bother passing it on. And then I had the good fortune of just going into work for uh, a law firm that really focused on estate planning. They had only been doing estate planning for the most part for over a hundred years. I ended up learning under their mentorship and so got a lot of really great experience with average estate sizes and even legacy planning, some of the complexities of trust and definitely the, the business transition planning. I think that's one of the blind spots for a lot of people. Business people often kind of hero their way through things and uh, we can't hero our way through death. So the transition planning is really critical for business owners who often end up being a lot of my clients. Tell us your lessons learned, because that's what I'm most excited about okay. and most interested in through all of these these trials and travails you've had, and they're okay. hard lessons. So hard lessons. One, just get it out there. Mm-hmm. You've got a product and you've got an idea. Don't talk about it. Do it. Okay. Just don't talk about it. Just get it done. So execution, execution. And you know what? Pull the trigger, as we used to say. That tech company with which I was involved, mm-hmm. a, a dear friend of mine, he wanted things to be perfect. Right. You know what? We don't have time to be perfect. Get it out there and you improve it. Yep. Get it out there and you improve it. So that's lesson number one. Okay. I think lesson number two that I've really seen recently, and that is goodwill. Okay. Versus merit. Okay. If you'd asked me 10 years ago mm-hmm. or 20 years ago, I would have said, you know what? Hard work, a great product, that's going to prevail. No, that's not true. You need people around you who want to see you win, who want to see you succeed. So you're talking about inside of your company, your partners, your business, and outside your companies. So promoters and partners. Nothing happens on its own. Okay. And again, hard work and merit, you just disappear into your little office and that's that's, that's it. Take example, being on the show today. Right. You and I have goodwill with each other. Okay. If I was in my office all the time, just working really hard, developing a great product, I wouldn't be on the show. You and I met each other. We like each other. Uh, now the Ukrainian special forces, as of this week, have soldier fuel arriving there. Getting ready to beat those Russians back? Yeah, it's a 500 special operators. We were on the phone with them with a translator last Fantastic. week. Fantastic. And the reason that happened is because I met two guys who had were political refugees from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. We liked each other. We got along really well. So they made a couple of phone calls and now the Ukraine special forces have soldier fuel. So this advice is you've got to get out there to make things happen. You've got to get out there to make things happen. Okay. And you know, if there's something that maybe you're tired and you don't really feel like going to a special event, mm-hmm. so what? Go anyway. Have a, have a, have a soldier fuel and uh, you'll feel like going. But definitely, you, you know, you, you have to have people who want to see you in. Okay. And I think that goes back to, you know, just be nice to people. Okay. Just be nice to people. Something that everyone is going to be curious about listening to this uh, death on death or death positivity is um, a a constant conversation that I have after speaking to thousands of people. Everybody wants to know, do I need a living trust or do I need a will? And I I have five tests. And in these tests, you're going to hear... Uh, some of those war stories. So number one, do you have real property or property outside of your home state? 
So this is where, hey, parents own a vacation timeshare somewhere, or they own a, a retirement house in Arizona, or um, they have mineral rights in South Dakota. Well, anytime right. there's property outside of your home state, you probably need to consider a living trust. So I'm just going to keep going through those through the through the checklist of basically the five issue, five issues. Other attorneys might have a different list. This is my list. Uh, number two, if you're over the estate tax threshold, the federal estate tax threshold is over 12 million, so it's pretty high. But in 2025, it's expected to uh, to be about 50% lower. So while this might not be a major issue federally right now it may drop in 2025 um and then also you want to be aware of your state's uh estate tax threshold i'm not gonna uh, mention washington because i'm sure you're gonna have people listening from all over the world but if your assets or your net worth including life insurance exceeds the estate tax threshold you definitely want to consider a living trust or a trust inside your will if you have a spouse you can often have a spousal credit shelter trust and then there's a bunch of technical terms, Q-tips, etc., um, to protect your assets or your heirs from the estate tax. Right now, if the estate tax applies, uh, the federal uh, gift and estate tax is about 40% for amounts over the threshold. Or they also just increase the gift uh, the gift tax exclusion to 17,000 per person. So again, if your net worth exceeds that amount, and if you're a married couple, you want to take your total combine net worth and divide by two to find each person's individual net worth. If it exceeds the estate tax threshold, you're definitely going to want to consider a living trust. Number three is one of the more interesting um, questions for me, and that's whether or not you have permanent dependents. Usually that's going to be children, special needs children. Sometimes it's uh, people with addiction issues, heirs that uh, you know have control issues over their money, or maybe they've got dementia. In those situations, you do want to talk about a special needs trust or a spendthrift trust, uh, some sort of living trust that you'd create for their benefit past your lifetime. Um, and that's really fun because we get to sit and talk about how to care for a loved one and what their special needs might be and who the right trustee is to, to care for them and if they need a guardian and all those sorts of things. So that's really important. The next one is if you have heirs who are non-US citizens, we really want to and talk about a qualified domestic trust because there's an ex expatriation tax that can apply and really kind of surprise people by by taking away a large portion of their inheritance if they're non-US citizens. We just easily draft a trust that has a trustee that's a US uh, person or entity to avoid the expatriation tax. And then the last one is the hardest one. I kind of already mentioned it. Uh, that's where you have um, a mixed marriage or children from outside of the marriage. Uh, those surprise children really want to be planned for inside of right. your estate plan. And uh, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's a very difficult conversation to have. And you can, you can really watch out for some of those troubles um, by uh, talking about a trust, particularly if you have a husband with children and a wife with children, the children in common, um, each person who passes away is going to be disposing of half of the marital community and each of the children is going to expect to inherit from it. So you have living trusts, you have Q dots, grats, crats, slats, 
um, special SNT, eyelets, uh, all, mm-hmm. all eyelets, uh, insurance trusts. Sure. So there's all kinds of things. The short story is the best strategy is to talk to an attorney about this and figure out what you need. And it's very circumstance specific. That's kind of what I'm drawing away from what you're saying. Unfortunately, in this business, there are a fair number of uh, people who go around with patents that uh, aren't particularly good patents who are asserting them, hoping to just get a settlement. You want to avoid that because that's just not the way to approach it. I mean, you want to have, you want to be comfortable that you have a valid patent that's infringed. Do your homework if you if you're able to understand it yourself, and if you're not, get get a hire an attorney that understands patent law and the technology that's involved. You have to understand both in order to really assess the patent. And sometimes, you know, you have to get an expert. Um, I've dealt with over the years, many, many experts in particular areas. I mean, you're not, you're not going to find any, any one patent attorney who understands every technical area because there is just too hard. So sometimes you have to go out and find an expert, a consultant who can say, well, you know, I understand this field and this is, this is the way these products work. And some of these products are, you know, really like black boxes. You really don't know how they work. They're really, it's really hard to, particularly in the computer areas, you know, it's, it's hard to. AI patents, right? Those are literal black boxes. Even the developers don't know what goes on. You know, to parse these things out and figure out exactly how they work is very, very difficult. But, you know, I guess advice number one is get a good attorney. Get a, you know. Okay. Get it, do your homework, get a good attorney. So now you're a good attorney. You know, the second thing is uh, it's always good to have multiple patents. If you're going to, if you're really asserting them uh, against an infringer, you don't want to have to rely on one claim of one patent. It's just like uh, going hunting with one bullet in your gun. Okay. You want to have, you want to have a six shooter or, you know, or, or uh, something, something like that. You want to have uh, a, a bunch of different patents if you have them, or at least a patent with a lot of different claims. And the other thing you want is ideally to have a continuation on file so that as you, as you learn more about how products work, assuming that your written description covers it, you can add claims to your patent. And you can, you can have new, new patents issued that have additional claims that might apply to developments in the technology. Um, so that's my, my second piece of advice is to, is to make sure that you have sufficient uh, claims or patents that cover the particular products involved and ideally have a continuation on file so you can have new patents issue as products develop. So um, my third piece of advice is if you're if you're prosecuting a patent, if you're in the stage where you you've got a, a pending application, you're trying to get a patent issued, and you have you know usually you have a, a, a prosecution attorney who's handling it. Um, but I find that, uh, and particularly when I went to enforce patents, it was very frustrating to me that the people who wrote the claims were largely ignorant of the English language. I'm putting it in a nice way. They would write claims that maybe an engineer understood, but that the average person couldn't figure out to, you know, what they're saying. And at the end of the day, when you enforce these patents, you're going to be 
if you if you get to a jury trial, you're going to have a jury of people who are not technical people or lawyers. They're going to be, uh, you know, people who work at banks and postmen and, you know, uh, the guy down, down who, you know, works right. down the block from you. They're going to be people like, uh, you know, you learn how to explain it to them. And yeah. you got to explain it. If the, if the language of the claim is so convoluted and the sentences are like, you know, page after page without punctuation and it's written in engineering language. It's really hard to explain this stuff. And then you have to get into claim construction. You have to hire people to come in to tell the jury what these things, what these words mean, what the what these sentences mean. And if there's any way at all you can you can you can write these claims in plain English without using highly technical terms, uh, do it. So much the better. So much yeah. the, it makes it makes your life a lot easier, right? Tony, I mean, what what is a plaintiff's favorite sentence at a Markman hearing? In claim construction, I I think it's plain and ordinary meaning. I think that's like every case I've ever done on the piece side of a patent case. Right. We want plain and ordinary meaning, and the defense always wants a very technical description of what the claim is. Okay. So I think that speaks to everything you said. I mean, I would get involved uh, in in my you know particularly when I had patents with continuations. I would get involved in the, the pending applications. I would I would actually write some of the claims. Because I was not happy with what I would read the claim and say, I don't understand this. I mean, I'm not a technical person, but I've been doing this a while. I don't understand this claim. I don't understand what this says. And I would rewrite it in a way that I understood. And I figured, okay, I'm not a tech. I was a French lit major. So if I can understand this, then, you know, the average guy in the jury is going to understand it. And and if I can't understand it, then the judge sure isn't going to understand it, you know, because he doesn't, he's not a technical person. So that was, that's my third piece of advice. So if I were to summarize then, first piece of advice is do your homework and get a good lawyer. Hit kind of hand in hand. First piece of advice is get the background right. Second piece of advice is that um, you've, you've got to understand what it is to have a good patent. That it's not obvious that there isn't prior art, that you have more than one claim, that you have multiple patents. Don't go hunting with one bull, right? Make sure that you've got a strong and lots of ammunition. So that you can you can be successful in the field of hunting, I guess, in the field of pr- prosecuting or pushing forward asserting patents. And then your third piece of advice was make sure if you can, and this is precedes everything else, that your patent is written in such a way that it's easy to understand. I think that's it's it's hard if you already are stuck with patents, you're stuck with what you're stuck with, but maybe in your continuation. Or maybe as you think about it as an inventor and you read what a patent attorney sent you and say, wow, I'm the inventor. This is confusing to me. Yeah. And you need to go back to your patent attorney and say, hey, this needs to be understandable. So I think that there's a great three pieces of advice. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.